Welcome to the Faith Broadcast. I'm Carrick Butler, the pastor of Faith Christian Center. Thanks for tuning in today. We believe today's message is going to help you live this lifestyle of faith. It's going to empower you to live a life that makes Jesus famous wherever you go. Open up your heart. We know God has something special just for you. And we believe that as you listen to today's message, something good is going to happen to you. So listen up. I'll talk to you today at the end of our broadcast. So let's talk about the book of Colossians. And we'll get into more about some of the themes of it today as well as um, next week. But one of the things you have to understand when you study books, there's different ways to study the Bible. And one of them is by book and verse by verse. But when you study a book by book, here's what you have to understand. You need to look for who wrote it, who was the first or the initial audience, what was the occasion of the writing. And sometimes even the time frame of when it was writing will help you understand what God was saying through this, the man of God as he wrote this book. So, first of all, we know the Apostle Paul wrote this book during his first Roman imprisonment. He was writing to the church at Colossae. Now, Colossae was an important city of Phrygia in Asia Minor. That's what we would call modern-day Turkey. Asia Minor, wherever you see that in the New Testament, is modern-day Turkey. A lot of the ministry of the Apostle Paul was to modern-day Turkey. And so... This city of Colossae was near Laodicea and Hierapolis. All three of these cities, Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis, they are very close together. Some of the cities you can, in less than a day's journey, you can walk between the cities. These three cities were very rich and commercial capitals in their own right. Laodicea was the richest of the, all the three and the greatest metro, metropolitan area of the three. But these three were very rich and economically well-to-do cities. On a clear day, you could see each city from each other. That's how close they were. One of the things about Colossae, it was known for its refreshingly cool springs. And people would travel there to be refreshed, especially people of Laodicea. They would travel to Hierapolis for the hot springs and the hot water. But they would travel to Colossae for the refreshingly cool springs. Now, something else you should understand about the church at Colossae the Colossian church. Paul did not personally start this church, but his influence was felt there. Some of the letters Paul wrote, he was writing to churches that he started. Others, he's writing to churches that he didn't start. And a lot of times when we read Paul's writings, we think, oh, Paul must have started the church at Colossae. Not directly. So let's look a little bit about it, because his influence was still felt there. He's like, what do you mean his influence will start there? Well, before we go to Colossians, go to Acts chapter 18, verse 23. Acts chapter 18, verse 23. And it says, After he, Paul, spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So what you see here is the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. And Galatia and Fergia are all part of modern-day Turkey. And you know, you're familiar with the phrase Galatia because it's the church at Galatia or the, where the letter of Galatians was written to. And so Galatia is a region, and Fergia is also a region, and some of those cities are Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. And so while he's going through, it's quite possible he passed through Colossae or passed around it. But he is ministering in this area, and his influence is felt there. 
the influence of the ministry the Holy Ghost has given him. But his influence doesn't stop there. Because you get to chapter 19, after he lands at Ephesus. We'll skip down to verse 8. This is after he got the people filled with the Holy Ghost. It says, And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way, speaking of Christianity, because before they were called Christians, they were called followers of the way, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. They spake evil of that way. Before the multitude, he departed from them and separated disciples. So he's already won a lot of people in Ephesus, that he has disciples who are following him. And he disputing, he was teaching and convincing and persuading, that's what it means, daily in the school of one Tyrannus. So there was a time where the schools were not meeting during the day because of the heat and different customs of the time. So Paul was able to rent out that space and he was able to preach there every single day for the space of two years. Now how effective was his teaching and preaching there for two years? Notice what it said. So that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now remember, when we said Asia here, it's talking about Asia Minor. It's not talking about the continent of Asia. It's talking about modern-day Turkey. So everybody in modern-day Turkey heard about Jesus and the word about Jesus because of Paul's teaching here. A lot of people traveled to be in this meeting. Other people heard it because Paul sent people out. And it says in verse 11, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So there are some people, for different reasons, who were not able to travel to the meeting in modern-day Turkey. But what they were able to do, Paul would take aprons or pieces of cloth. Some people say it was pieces of his turban. Other are cloths that were around him. He would lay his hands on them and pray, and these cloths would become storage batteries of the anointing and the power of God. So the same power that was working in this meeting, notice it's special miracles. Now Paul already had a ministry of miracles, but these were uniquely, specially strong miracles that were happening over the period of two years. It was a special outflow of power that was greater than what Paul was used to flowing in these two years. To such an extent, when people brought these cloths to him, or these cloths encountered his body, these cloths would be saturated with the power of God. And when people would take these cloths back to the sick, the infirmed, or the demon-possessed, they would be healed, delivered, and made whole. So there was nothing special about the cloths. What was special is the anointing. That Paul would take his hand and pray over these cloths, and the power of God flow from them into those cloths and make a difference. You know, at the start of this year, we had Miracle Sunday, and I instructed for people who could not make it, bring the cloths, and we'll lay hands on them according to Acts chapter 19 and believe that God would do the same thing. Now, we saw many miracles that happened in this sanctuary, but we also heard testimonies of people who took the cloths, and people were healed where those cloths were sent. I recently got another testimony a couple weeks ago, a person who had a certain bad diagnosis from the doctor. And, you know, they don't go to the church, but they have a family member that does. And so they live in another state. And so we took, you know, I took some extra cloths. I prayed over that day, and I set them aside just in case anyone had asked for them. And so they came to my office and said, this is what, you know, my family member has been diagnosed with, and this is what the doctors had said. And, you know, I said, okay, well, let's get this cloth. And so I took it in my hand, and I began to thank God for it. 
and began to release my faith. And as I did it, that cloth began to heat up in my hand. And as I handed it over to the other person, they said, I can, st I can feel the warmth and the fire within this cloth. And so what do we do? We mailed it to that person, and that person kept it on their body for a period of weeks or a period of months until they went back to the doctor, and the doctor said that whole disease was completely gone. Now the thing was, it's nothing special about the cloth, because all that cloth was was a piece of handkerchief that I ripped. The handkerchief wasn't special. The cloth wasn't special. What's special is the power of God that is released by faith. So what we see here in Acts chapter 19 is a regional revival where its epic center is Ephesus, but it's affecting all the other cities. It's affecting Smyrna. It's affecting Laodicea. It's affecting Hierapolis. It's affecting Colossae. It's affecting all these cities. They're being affected by the word of God that's going out as well as the power of God that is flowing. And there are people who are turning to God in record numbers. Now, let's look at what one of Paul's opponents, one of his enemies, one of his haters had to say about the effectiveness of his ministry. Because, you know, sometimes haters try to downplay what you do. But notice what this person who's trying to stop Paul said in verse 26. Well, we back up to verse 25. Now, this person by trade was a silversmith, and he would make the idols that people would worship to in those times. And so he called together with the workmen of the same occupation, the same industry, and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft, by these making the idols, we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying they be no gods which are made with hands. Now, how did this person by the name of Demetrius know that's what Paul is saying? He went to the meeting. Remember, this whole city of Ephesus, a whole lot of people in Turkey went to these meetings. Now, Demetrius didn't believe. He wasn't saved. He was offended at the word. He didn't want to receive the word, and he left without receiving from the word. And so he can quote one of Paul's messages because he was there. And Demetrius says, not only in Ephesus, because you read before the verses, the great revival that happened in that city specifically, but throughout all Turkey, there are people turning away from these regional gods, from these Greek and Roman gods, and began to worship Jesus. And so what happened? They're not coming to Demetrius and his crew to build idols anymore, to buy idols. Where are their money going? Their money is being invested in the church and the ministry of Paul. And so there have been an economic shift in the region. And Demetrius is mad. He's like, I want my money back. And says, what can we do to stop Paul and get him out of there? So we see the influence of Paul's ministry during this time in chapter 18 and chapter 19. Didn't just stay in one city, but affected all of modern-day Turkey, which Colossae, the letter to the Colossians who was addressed to, was impacted by. So now, with a little bit of backdrop, let's head over to Colossians chapter 1. And I'll give you a few more backdrop before we begin our verse-by-verse -verse study. One of the things we'll see in the first few verses was this church was started by Epaphras. Epaphras was one of the fellow workers of Paul. He was a minister of the gospel, someone that Paul had trained and probably won to the Lord. And he was sent by Paul, and he evangelized the areas of Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. And he started those three churches there. One of the things we'll learn about him later is that he is a man of prayer. You know, Paul would talk about his prayer life. He says, I bear him witness that he works hard for you in prayer. So not only did he start these churches, he was a tremendous prayer warrior. 
and we'll talk about the importance of that later in this series. So, Epaphras started the church under the direction of Paul, and he wanted to share with Paul how things were going at the church, so he traveled to Rome and gave Paul the update on how the church was doing, and the church was doing mostly good. It was mostly good news. Now, Epaphras also shared about some of the threats coming to the church, and the attack of the enemy did derail what the church was doing. So one of the things you understand about these letters in these books, there's a central theme that runs through these books and letters. In the book of Colossians, the central theme is Christ and his preeminence. You might say, well, of course, that's a Sunday school answer. You know, you ask a kid, well, what'd you learn in Sunday school today? What'd you learn in children's church today? What'd you learn in kids' world today? You know, if they can't remember the top of their head, the safest answer to say is Jesus. But that's not, you know, when we study the books of the Bible, yes, Jesus is a central figure of the book and everything is about him. But it's not, he's not always a central theme of every book. For example, the book two of Ephesians is about the church. The church is a central theme. But the central theme of Colossians is Christ and his preeminence. And you'll see that displayed in the language that Paul uses and what he's talking about. So the central theme is Christ and his preeminence. So if you're watching somewhere, you can type and comment. Go ahead and type in the central theme is Christ and his preeminence. In this letter, the letter to the Colossians, Paul is combating a number of topics. He's combating Gnosticism. We'll break that down in a future message. He's combating asceticism. We'll break that down in a future message. He's combating undue attention to spiritual powers to the detriment of the place given to Christ. He's combating undue attention to spiritual powers to the detriment of the place given to Christ. He's also combating undue attention given to feast, fast, new moons, and Sabbaths. He's combating undue attention given to feast, fast, new moons, and Sabbaths. And so when you understand what Paul is opposing, you'll begin to understand some of the language and phraseology he uses to encourage this church and their stand of faith. Now also something you should know. This letter was written at the same time as Ephesians. Ephesians and Colossians also call it usually twin letters. So it was written at the same time as Ephesians, but it was also written at the same time as the epistle or the letter to Philemon. Philemon is a member and a leader of the church at Colossae. So when this letter was showing up to the church of Colossae, it was brought by Tychus and Onesimus. I'll tell you why Onesimus is so important later. It was brought by these two, you know, they're announcing, hey, church at Colossae, Colossians, we have a letter from Paul. But they say, hey, also Philemon, you got a private letter from Paul. And we'll talk about why that's so important later when we get into chapter 4 of Colossians. So if you want to understand what God was dealing with Paul during this time, if you want to have a little bit more revelation of some of the things that Colossians is saying, you should re also read not just Colossians, but Ephesians and Philemon. And you'll know more things of what the Holy Ghost was saying through Paul. And also remember, these were, you'll see later, these were intended to be circular letters. Colossians was, was intended to get to the end of the book, to go to Laodicea afterwards. The church at Ephesus was one of the headquarters church of the region, and so whatever happened in Ephesus affected all of the churches in modern-day Turkey, and so what was sent to Ephesus also made the circuit to those churches. And so these were messages to specific churches, but also to the region. So if you want to have more understanding about Ephesians or Colossians, read both books together as well as the epistle to Philemon. So now, 
with all that introduction said, let's go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So let's look at one of these important statements of verse 1. Yes, Paul's an apostle. What's an apostle? It's one of the fivefold ministry gifts. Jesus has given five ministry gifts, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. They are still working in the church today. You know, half of them are going to stop working after the last apostle. They are still apostles today. There are different types of apostles, but they're still apostles today. They're still prophets today. They're still evangelists today. They're still pastors today, and they're still teachers today. These are ministry gifts given to the equipping and the building up and the maturing of the saints so that the saints can do the work of the ministry. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And so he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? By the will of God. So Paul is saying, I didn't pick myself to be an apostle. I didn't choose to be an apostle. I didn't sign up for, to be an apostle. I didn't go to school to be an apostle. I am an apostle by the will of God. God selected me to be an apostle. He's saying it is the will of God for my life to be an apostle. You should know the will of God for your life so that you can say with certainty like Paul that I am so-and-so and I am this because it's the will of God. Paul knew the will of God for his life. You need to know the will of God for your life. Some of you know it. Some of you know a little bit about it. Some of you are growing it. But some of you may watch right now and say, well, I don't know what the will of God is for my life. Well, take time every day. Get before God and talk to him about it and pray. Spend some time worshiping him. Spend some time, especially if you're filled with the Holy Ghost, spend a lot of time praying in other tongues, praying in the Spirit. And as you do that, what you're called to do will come up to your mind. Sometimes you're hearing in times of prayer that after you spend time in prayer and worship, and praise, you kind of just sit there after you read the word and you listen. And sometimes he'll share with you things there. Other time, you'll just be living and it just dawns upon you, for lack of better words. You're illuminated and understanding has come to your mind. What is that? For a lot of you, praying tongues is the interpretation of what you prayed out. For others, it's just you finally got to a moment where you heard from God and you had the clarity. Some people stumble into the will of God for their lives. But God has not called you to stumble in the will of God. He's called you to walk in the will that he has for you. You know, one of the things we saw in Psalms, it is his covenant to make you know the plan or the path he has for your life. God wants you to know his will for your life. He doesn't want you to play guessing games with his will. He wants you to know with clarity so you can take the steps he's ordained for you. For the steps of the Lord are ordered for the righteous. He's prepared steps for you, and the Holy Spirit wants to reveal them to you. So even tonight before you go to bed, ask God to reveal more of his will for your life. Ask God to give you more insight concerning his plan and the path he has for you. And as that is your continual prayer, he'll continually show you more and more. You don't just pray about the will of God for your life when you're young. No, you do it on a consistent basis so you make sure you're walking in the will of God. Because some of you may have started in the will of God. But just like an airplane, if it gets one degree off and it goes, uh, flies for a number of hours, it may have been supposed to be going to Atlanta, but you can end up in South America or Africa if you travel long enough because you got one degree off. And a lot of people can get off in the will of God for their life because they didn't check in with the one who gave them the plan in the first place. So you have to keep checking in on a regular basis to make sure you're walking the path that God has for you, fulfilling the vision God has for you. You know, Paul calls in the book of Acts the heavenly vision. There's a heavenly vision for your life as an individual, for your family, and for this church. And we all must do our parts to make sure we're walking out the heavenly vision and walking in the will of God for our lives. And Timothy, our brother, who's Timothy? One of Paul's spiritual sons. 
someone who t uh, he sends later and he becomes the pastor of the church at Ephesus. You know, the church at Ephesus becomes the largest church in that time. It's the largest church in the world in that time. And Timothy is a young man, but he's the pastor of the largest church in the world. And so when you read Ephesians, you see some of the things Paul's saying to the church at Ephesus. But also when you read the letters of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, it's Paul speaking to Timothy, but he's also teaching him how to minister to the church at Ephesus. So Timothy is a very important believer. He comes from a Jewish and a Greek background. He is mixed. He was one in Paul's, one of Paul's missionary journeys. He's become an effective ministry partner to Paul, as well as to the churches of modern-day Turkey. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. You know, something else you notice in the writings of Paul, the term saints and faithful are interchangeable. Sometimes he calls them faithful. Sometimes he calls them saints. Why is that important? The saints, those are people who are called by God. The holy ones, you've been made the righteous of God in Christ Jesus. You believe in Jesus. You've been saved. You are a saint. You don't have to be ratified to be a saint. The Bible calls you a saint if you believe in Jesus, if you are one of his. Now, you may not be walking at the current level of holiness that you should be, but the Bible still calls you saints or holy ones. But in interchangeable language with Paul, he calls saints faithful and the faithful saints. And sometimes he says the saints and faithful. Why? It should be that every believer should be faithful. It's the expectation of God for every believer to be faithful, trustworthy, reliable, that God can trust you. God can rely on you because you are faithful. You know, I've heard it said recently by a man of God, I love this quote, and I've been saying it so often since, that a faithful God and a faithful people can do wonderful things together. God wants his people to be faithful. He wants them to be trustworthy. He wants them to be reliable. What does this word faithfulness speak to you? consistency. So it's not just, you know, being Jesus people on Sundays. It's being Jesus people every single day. It's not just being the church on Sundays, being the church every single day. It's not just having a prayer life one day, but it's having a prayer life every day. It's not just using your faith one day, it's using your faith every day. It's not just walking in love one day, it's walking in love every day. The power is in the consistency, and that's how you become faithful. You say, well, I'm praying to be faithful. Well, good, that's a good place to start, but it's your daily decision to do what God told you to do. Now, he didn't say the perfect people with no issues. He says the faithful. So the faithful, yes, they have issues. Yes, they miss it. But they're committed to doing the word of God, and God can trust them even in their imperfections. Think about that. God can trust you in your imperfections. God trusts you even though he, he knows you'll make mistakes, even though you'll blow it. You know what? That's why there is mercy. Now, we don't just say, well, I'm going to not do anything God wants me to do because there's mercy. No, that's not how it works. But as you follow the will of God for your life, know there's mercy for you and know that God wants you to be faithful to what he called you to do. Notice the next phrase. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why would Paul say grace unto you and peace? Some people, you, you might try to make it really deep. It's very simple. The way Greeks and Romans would greet each other, they would say grace to you or grace and favor to you. That was their hello. That was their welcome. That if you wanted to welcome someone warmly, you would say grace to you or grace and favor to you. That's what it was implying. But in the Jewish world, the way they greet, and some people in Israel still greet today, they would say shalom. And this word peace here is the Greek equivalent of the word shalom. It's peace or how's your wholeness? And I pray that you are whole. I pray that you are restored. That was a greeting, a warm greeting. 
So what is Paul doing when he says grace and peace be unto you? He is making this letter open to all cultures. So no matter if you're Greek or Roman or Jewish, this greeting applies to you. And this letter is open to all, no matter what your background or culture is. But notice who the greeting came from. It didn't just come from Paul and Timothy. He said, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So God the Father and Jesus are giving this welcome and greeting to the entire world, no matter what their culture or background is. And also in addition to that, because we know the spiritual implication of these words, that grace flows from the Father, that there's 21 different definitions of grace, and one is undeserved favor, other is power of the Holy Spirit, it's the influence of the Holy Spirit upon the heart, it's graciousness. This is flowing from the Father to them, but also peace. They're at peace with God. God's not mad at them. God's not fighting them. They're at peace with God, but also peace flows from God, that no matter what's going on in their life, they can experience the peace of so notice how it calls God. The first mention of God, giving him a title, because we already saw the will of God earlier, but God our Father. So he's emphasizing the fatherhood of God. Now he already told the saints and the faithful that they are in Christ, but notice the next reference. He says, and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things I told you, that in this theme, the central theme is Christ and his preeminence. And so we need to give special attention to special words. Now we see the word Lord and it's become casual to most of us. You know, we say the Lord, the Lord. We refer to Jesus and God, of course, but we're saying the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. But when you look at the word Lord in Greek, it means the supreme in authority. So notice what he's opening up with. From God our Father and from the supreme in authority, Jesus Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's talking about who he is. And who is he? The word Christ means the, it's, you know, Hebrews Messiah, but it's translated the anointed one and his anointing. So it says, this greeting is coming from God our Father and for the supreme in authority, Jesus, the anointed one and his anointing. So from the very start, he already says he's an apostle by the will of God. He's an apostle of Jesus, the anointed one. He's an apostle by the anointing of God. That these people, they are saints and faithful brethren in Jesus, the anointed one, and his anointing. And Jesus is the supreme in authority. So notice, it's a mouthful already, and we haven't even got to verse 3. So there's a lot of things that these scriptures were saying already. So we get to verse 3, and it says, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, emphasize, remember, Christ is a central theme. So what do we see about Christ here in verse 3? That God is his Father. And remember how often in the Gospels, how Jesus referred to God, he would pray to him as Father, and he would tell him, my Father and your Father. He says, pray this way, Father. He was emphasizing the fatherhood of God, and Jesus was confident in his relationship with God. And so here he's stressing to the Colossians that we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord. So remember before he said the Lord, now he's saying our Lord. So our supreme in authority. So he is the Lord, but also remember he is our Lord. The supreme in authority. Jesus, the anointed one, is anointing. And then Paul says in ver end of verse 3, praying always for you. One of the things you'll see here in this first chapter, in chapter 4, the importance given to prayer. Not just for the church praying, but the ministers praying for the church. 
and says, we pray always for you. So when did Paul start praying? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have to all the saints. So after they became believers, they heard from Epaphras and others who may have been with them ministering the gospel. They believed in Jesus. They have faith in the anointed one, Jesus. As soon as they heard about their faith and the love which you have to all the saints. So not only are they have faith in Jesus, they love all the saints. Not just the saints in Colossae, they show the love of God to every believer, every word that they encounter. He says, since we heard of your faith and your love, we began praying for you. And notice one of the things this faith and love is connected to. Verse 5, for the hope or the expectation. So we see three powerful spiritual forces that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. And Paul said that the greatest of these, or the largest of these, is love. These things are spiritual forces. And so we see at the very opening that this church is operating in the spiritual forces of love, faith, and hope. Notice what their hope or their expectation is, which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Their expectation, and they keep it in their heart and their mind, of what God has reserved for them in heaven. You know, God has things reserved for you. You know, recently there was just a man of God who was known for defending the gospel and defending the gospel in such a way before kings and prominent men as well as on university campuses and won I don't know how many people to Jesus. He just recently went home to be with the Lord. You know, some people social media talk about the impact his books and his messages had on their life. You know, one of the things you can think about is how someone like that, when they got into heaven, when they heard, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. You think about their reward. They have entered into their heavenly reward. There are rewards for you in heaven. Yes, God does reward people on earth. Yes, we've talked about that from the Gospels. Yes, there's goodness that God has planned to manifest on earth. But on top of all that goodness and reward here, there's still more rewards and goodness reserved for you in heaven. You know, one of the things we learned about heaven, there are mansions individually designed for you by Jesus himself. There are crowns. There's five different crowns that you can be awarded in heaven. Now, you don't just wear them around heaven. You cast them at the feet of Jesus in act of worship. But there are rewards for you and so much waiting for you in heaven. And this church in Colossians had this, this church at Colossae, excuse me, had this on their mind. And because they had that expectation of heaven, the expectation of the reward in heaven, the love flowed from them to all the saints and it encouraged their faith in Christ Jesus. And they heard of these things because of the word of the truth of the gospel. So notice one of the things Paul calls the word of God. The word of the truth of the gospel. The word of the truth of the gospel, the good news. Which is come unto you as it is in all the world and brings forth fruit. So notice what he's saying. Because we're going to talk about Epaphras for a minute. Because a lot of these people, you'll see, especially if you study chapter 2, have never met Paul. A few of them know Paul. A few of them have encounters with Paul. Some of them are friends of Paul. But most of them have never even seen Paul in person. They've never met him. A lot of people there in Laodicea had never met Paul in person, never seen him in person. They've heard of him from stories of, by Epaphras and Philemon and a few others, but most of them had not met him. A lot of them may have heard because of the messages that were flowing from Ephesus, but a lot of them have never seen 
Paul in person, but they've been impacted and influenced by his ministry, either through Epaphras or what happened in Ephesus. But notice what he is confirming. What you heard is true. What you heard that I preached is true. What Epaphras preached to you is true. It is the word of the truth of the gospel. What you heard is accurate. So he's giving validation to the ministry of Epaphras and the word that was taught. Because one of the things you'll see when we get more into the book, that the philosophies that were coming against the church were challenging the word of the truth of the gospel that Epaphras had taught. So Paul is giving validation to the word that Epaphras had been teaching them and letting them know that, yes, here's my stamp of approval on what Epaphras has been preaching and teaching. It is from the word of God. It is from the Holy Ghost. And he says, it's come unto you just like it came to everybody else in the world. You didn't receive some watered-down version of the truth. You didn't receive some watered-down version of the gospel. What you received is the same thing that's being preached right now all around the world. And notice what it says, and it brings forth fruit all around the world. But notice, as it has does also in you. So it's bringing fruit in them. Since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. So notice it brought fruit, but it is still bringing fruit, that the fruit didn't disappear. So this, this is a fruitful church. But for the word to bring forth fruit, this references something Jesus taught. So let's go to Mark chapter 4. See, when you take time to study verse by verse, you can take 30 minutes and not even get to six verses. Mark chapter 4. And this is the most important parable of the Bible. You know, some people call it the parable of the sower. So let's look at how Jesus interprets the parable. Because he says in verse 13, he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? How then will you know all parables? The sower sows the word. And these are they by the wayside when the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. So they hear the word, but they reject it. They decide, I don't get it, I don't understand it, and they reject it. And as soon as they reject it, Satan takes it away. Satan, his demonic army, takes it away. Like Demetrius, he heard the word in Ephesus, like, yeah, I don't want that. And Satan was able to steal the word from his heart. And these are they likewise which are sown on the stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness. That word there means to shout. They heard the word. They believe it. They began to rejoice. They began to shout. They began to celebrate. And they get immediate production. So when you hear the word, you should rejoice and shout. It brings immediate production. But notice verse 17, they have no root in themselves and so endure, but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution, that's pressure brought by circumstance or pressure brought by people, arises for the word's sake. Why? You know, people say, well, the affliction and persecution came to make me strong. No, it didn't. The affliction and persecution came to take you out. The affliction and persecution came to take the word from your heart. Stop singing songs where the affliction came to make me strong. You know, it might be a good song. Just change those lyrics. The affliction did not come to make you strong. The pressure did not come to make you strong. The pressure came to steal the word. A lot of people are under pressure right now. God didn't send the pressure not to steal the word. This pressure came because you received the word. And so, affliction and persecution are tools of the enemy to steal the word from you. And it says immediately they are offended. They are trapped in their offense because the pressure came. And so they are holding on to the word for a little while, but they let it go because of the pressure. And what happened? It wilted away. Because remember the example when you see 
in verse 6 but when the sun was up it was scorched because it had no root and it withered away so what happened the pressure of affliction and persecution was applied to the growth of the word now the word didn't go down deep they believed in that production but they didn't let the word go deep in their hearts so when the pressure came what word that produced in their life disappeared so now their lives look like they've never received the word in the first place how many Christians have we seen that they get excited about God? They get excited about following Jesus. Man, they're on fire. They're zealous. They don't have much knowledge, but they're zealous. And they apply the word, and the word starts working in their life. But Satan attacks. Pressure comes in life. And then you don't see them getting the word anymore. You don't see them on online broadcasts anymore. You don't see them anymore because they say, yeah, I don't know about that anymore. What happened? The pressure was applied. They let go of the word. And now their lives look like they never received the word in the first place all from the attack of the enemy. Verse 19, and the cares or the worries and the stresses and the anxiety, that's what that word means, of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, that means being deceived by riches, and the lust of other things, so inordinate desire for other things. These are three other attacks of the enemy, tactics of the enemy. Enter in and choke or crowd out the word and it becomes unfruitful. So the word can grow in the heart as well as the weeds of anxiety, Deception of riches and an ordinary desire for other things. So we, you know, anxiety, care, worry. We talked about that. Deception of riches. What does that mean? If you believe lies about money, if you believe money is going to solve all the problems in your life, then you're believing a lie about money. If you believe money is evil, then you're believing a lie about money. He's like, no, Pastor, the Bible says money is evil. No, it doesn't. It says the love of money which is translated from the Greek word, which means extreme greed, extreme avarice is the root of all evil. So extreme avarice is the root of all evil, not money. So if you believe money is evil and that no one should have money or everybody should have a limited amount of money, then you believe a lie about money. If you believe money is the answer to all your issues, then you believe a lie about money. Now money does answer a lot of things, but there's some things in your life that can't be solved by money, no matter how much you got. And so the deception about wealth and money, the anxiety and the worry that's in this world, and in order and desire for other things can enter into heart where the word is. So all these weeds can grow in the heart. And remember, weeds come in by different seeds. And so you may not always know it's there until it starts producing. And if you don't cultivate your heart, these things will grow at the same time the word is but then it begins to choke and crowd out the word so that the word in your heart becomes unfruitful. Now, the word didn't disappear. Notice this. The word did not disappear like it did under those in affliction and persecution, that other group. The word is still there, but the word is not producing in their life. And you got people who say, well, I'm serving God. I'm being faithful. But why is not the word producing in my life? Why am I seeing results? You know, sister so-and-so got results, and brother so-and-so got results, and pastor got results, and the, the evangelist got results. Where's the results in my life? And sometimes it's not even a waiting game for them. They just don't see any results, and they get discouraged. And it's not because the word is not working or the word hasn't grown. It's because of the other things you allow to grow in your heart at the same time. If you don't see the word working for your life, you know, go check to see. Do you believe lies about money? Are you worried or anxious about anything? Are there inordinate strong affections in your heart? Go and check your heart. Examine yourself and cultivate your heart. And go through those things and remove those things from your heart. Apply the word of God to your life. Remove those things from your heart. You know, we looked at some of those things in a previous series called Soul Wars. You know, I encourage you, it's on the Faithless app. If you missed it, go listen to that. And it'll help you do some of these things. 
And so, notice the last group of people. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it. So they don't reject it like that first group. They receive it, they take it, and it brings forth fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. So these are people who didn't give in to the affliction and the persecution. They didn't give in to the pressure. These are people who rooted out the anxiety and rooted out the deception of riches and rooted out the lust of other things. They rooted out these things so that the word can produce. All that being said, go back to Colossians chapter 1. And we'll bring it to a close. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 6. Which is common to you as it is to all the world and brings forth fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. What happened? These Colossians didn't give in to the pressure of people. They didn't give in to the pressure of circumstances. They didn't give in to the anxiety. They didn't give in to deception about riches. They didn't give in to the lust of other things. They heard the word and received the word. They acted on the word, and the word was producing fruit in their lives. What a testimony. They were beating the five attacks of the enemy. Now, you'll see more about the attacks because he was coming to keep the word from working because it was working in their life. And we'll get into that as we get further in the series. But one encouragement from this, if the church at Colossae could be the attacks of the enemy and the word could bear fruit in their life, it can in yours as well. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to gather with my family all around the world as we dive into the book of Colossians. Father, help us not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. So we bless in our doing as it says in the book of James. Father, what we heard can cause it to continue to speak to us tonight and this week and help us the next time build on this foundation to learn more of what you were saying to the church at Colossae and what you're saying to us today. I thank you for your help tonight. I give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for watching today. We hope today's message was a blessing to you that empowered you to make Jesus famous in every area of your life. Hey, if you want to be a part of what God's doing here at Faith, you know, our vision statement is to ignite an awakening that impacts Georgia and influences the world through the power of the love of Jesus. And we'd love for you to be a part. You can find out our different experience times and our different locations by going to FCCGA.com. If you want to give, you can text FCCGA to 73256. You can also go to FCCGA.com to give online and be a part of what God's doing here. We'd love to see you anytime you're in our area. We believe God has something good just for you. And anytime you come to our faith experience, we believe you will experience God and his plan for your life. So thank you for tuning in today. We'll see you next time.